Thank you, Eric, for leading us so well in prayer this morning. Uh, If you will turn to your Bibles in the letter of Paul to the Colossians, I'll share with you my little mnemonic, uh, General Electric Power Company. If you get nothing else out of today, may that help you in finding those four little letters. Uh, A friend of mine came up with that in college as we had to memorize all the New Testament books, and it's stuck with me and uh, done well with me. You may uh, not know this, uh, but Blake has mentioned it once, I think, that he is doing a homiletics class for John and Kent and myself. And uh, he's being very gracious with his time, not only in teaching us the art of preaching, um, but he's also being gracious with the pulpit and allowing John and Kent and myself to share what we are going to be uh, preaching through Colossians. So I think we have 12 sermons that we're going to be bringing to the body over an extended period of time, and we're going to work our way all the way through Colossians. So hang on to your Colossians notes and review them, uh, because John will be following with me uh, on the heels of this text today. Uh, I, I don't know, it's about a month or so, John, that you're preaching on the next text in Colossians. So, so please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we implore you to grant us your Holy Spirit, for we know without it we are but dumb and mute beats. Father, we cannot hear your word or see your glory apart from, from you revealing yourself to us through your scriptures. And I pray, Lord, today that you would take this uh, broken and sinful man and use him to bring glory to your name. Amen. I was 18 in 1984. That makes me 57, in case you're doing the math. It was my freshman year at Gordon College, and I was a young believer. I had been a believer for only two years at that time. And it was a great fall. I was meeting a lot of new people, new Christians my age. But I quickly hit it off with another guy named Peter. And we shared a similar conversion story, a mutual zeal for Christ. And soon I came to learn that Peter was a Pentecostal. And one day he asked me if I had been baptized in the spirit and had received the gift of tongues. Well, no true confessions here. I had not and nor have I since that time. But my curiosity was piqued. And it led me on a year-long search for, as Peter said, a deeper and fuller gospel. His His testimony made me feel as if my faith was somehow incomplete, lacking in some fundamental way. Was I believing the full gospel? Was there more to know and experience? In the, in the epistle to the Colossians, Paul is writing to the young church at Colossae. And like my 18-year-old self, they are at a critical juncture in their Christian walk. 
And they're asking the very same questions that I was asking. Is the gospel we believed the full gospel? Is it the complete knowledge of God's plan for salvation? Or as some are teaching, are we missing something? Something fuller, something greater than what we've been taught. In our passage today, Paul responds to these questions clearly and emphatically. That the gospel you have received from Epaphras is the true message of God. It is his plan for salvation. And the evidence is in the fruit that it produces and the blessings that it brings. So if you're a note taker, the three points of this message today are the truth of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, and the blessings of the gospel. The truth, the fruit, and the blessings. First, the truth of the gospel. If you'll turn to your Bibles in the opening chapter, let's start at verse 3 and read together. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. I find it interesting here that in none of Paul's opening statements in any of his other letters does he use the word truth. And yet in this opening section, he uses the same Greek word for truth twice. And this isn't by accident because Paul is teeing up an extended argument that he will continue through the full extent of the first two chapters. And he's going to argue for the truthfulness and the sufficiency of the gospel of grace. You see, false teachers have entered the fellowship and they are promoting, as Paul writes in chapter 2, philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Gnosticism has crept in, which claims you need special knowledge. And asceticism, which prescribes strict rules around food and drink and personal behavior in order to restrain the flesh. Paul is assuring the Colossians that the fullness of truth is found in the simple gospel. As he writes in verses 5 and 6, you have received the word of truth, the gospel. And again, you have understood the grace of God in truth. Paul is asserting it's not what you know and do, but whom you know and follow. That you cannot add anything to Christ. And isn't this the way of our own hearts? 
We find grace so scandalous that we're always trying to add to it some work, some ritual, something to justify ourselves. Our hearts truly do have a hard time accepting the simplicity of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you are saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. We always want to add something to the gospel. There's a story about the Duncan Hines company when they first introduced their brownie mix. All the commercial brands at that time had powdered eggs in them. And all anyone had to do to make a batch of instant brownie deliciousness was add a cup of water, mix it up, and bake. But Duncan Hines came up with an idea. What if we have people add an egg, even though it was completely unnecessary? Soon, Duncan Hines' brownie mix became a bestseller. Why? Because the marketers realized people like to do some work, even if it's just cracking an egg. The free grace of a no-egg brownie mix isn't enough. (laughs) This is why Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Paul warns the Colossians, don't let anyone add to the true gospel of grace. You don't have to add an egg. How many of you here today are between the ages of 13 and 23? I want you to raise your hand if you're between 13 and 20. John, put your hand down. You have either entered or are about to enter what I call the great decade of your life. This is the period of your life that you will be reaching multiple multiple milestones and making foundational decisions for your life. You'll graduate from high school, go away to college, live outside the authority of your parents for the first time, You'll begin training toward a vocation. You'll possibly meet and marry your spouse and begin a family. But the most important decision you'll make is the same decision facing the Colossians. It's answering the same question that Pilate asked Jesus. What is truth? Is this historical event the, cru- the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, true. Did you catch the statistic that Caleb Litchfield mentioned several weeks ago? I checked Caleb's research and it was solid. 75% of Christian young people will walk away from the faith 
after high school. One of the key reasons they do is intellectual skepticism. Brought about by antagonistic professors or or authority figures. There was another study by Fuller Seminary which determined that the most important factor in whether you will leave the church or remain steadfast in your faith is whether you have a safe haven to express your doubts and your concerns regarding your faith before leaving home. First, that statistic should frighten you and all of us. But second, and I want you young people to hear me really clearly, Christianity can withstand the most difficult intellectual challenges. It is good to ask the hard questions about your faith. This should not scare us. All truth is God's truth. And I want to encourage parents and teachers of this church, don't be afraid to engage our young people on difficult topics. There are tremendous minds in the Christian church and good answers to the hardest questions. And for what it's worth, as someone who has spent 40 years thinking deeply about the hard questions, who has sought answers from the great Christian minds, the digger I The deeper I dig, the more sure I am about my faith. I often joke that I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And before Pilate, he says, the reason I came into this world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In the gospel, you have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this brings us to our second point, and that is the fruit of the gospel. One sign of the sufficiency of the gospel is the fruit that, has, that it has produced in the Colossians' lives. Uh, Again, look at me at verses uh, 3 through 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. The reason for Paul's thanksgiving is because these fruits are evident in the lives of the Colossians. Faith produces love for one another and produces a hope laid up in heaven. Paul mentions faith and love multiple times in this letter. And for the Christian, faith and love are intricately entwined. Like two strands in a in the cord in a cord of rope or or the two sides of a coin faith in Jesus Christ and love for God's people for his church are inseparable this is what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 13:35 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my, are my disciples if you love one another. Love is what, is what binds the Colossians together and it is what binds us together today. I find it so cool. Faith in Christ expressing itself in love transcends national and cultural differences. If you have met Christians from other countries or from different cultural or ethnic backgrounds, you know this is true. We prayed for Pastor Enoch today in our prayers. And I had the privilege of of hosting him last fall. Pastor Enoch and Stephen Philbrook couldn't be any more different across every sociological, racial, and cultural index. And yet it took about five seconds for us to begin talking about our faith and our love for Christ and for experiencing an authentic Christian fellowship. In a world that has become increasingly divisive, it is the gospel of truth that truly unites people. This is a loving church. And I know I am aware of only a small amount of the love and good deeds that this church shows to one another in our community. I love hearing the positive gossip of this church. That someone shared the gospel with a co-worker. That someone visited a fellow member just to check in. That a financial need in our community was met. That a meal was cooked for a family. That an encouraging word was aptly spoken. That mothers and fathers are leading their families well. This church loves well and desires gospel growth. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with this. First Philippians chapter uh, Verse 9. Philippians 1, chapter 9, excuse me. That our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that we may prove what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For Galatians 6, 9 tells us that not to grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Faith in the gospel of truth brings about personal transformation, which manifests itself in love for one another. So there's gospel truth. There are the gospel fruits of love, faith, and hope. And third, there's gospel blessings. Let's look at our scripture again, verses 9 through 14. Read them with me. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In this passage, Paul is doing two things. First, he is praying for the fruit of the gospel to continue to grow in the lives of the Colossians. And then second, he encourages them with the spiritual blessings that are already theirs. Let me ask you this question. Do your prayers often feel dull and uninspiring? When you open your church directory, which I hope you do, do you wonder how to pray for one another? In these verses, we have Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And it is an excellent example of gospel prayer for gospel blessings. And let's look at them individually. In verse 9, Paul prays that the gospel of truth will fill them with the knowledge of his will, resulting in spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verse 10, Paul prays that the gospel of grace will continue to change their hearts from duty to devotion. So they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And finally, in verse 11, he prays that they will be strengthened with all power which it produces endurance and patience and with joy. Brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful model for how we ought to pray for one another. And following this prayer, Paul then goes on to highlight an amazing list of five blessings that the Colossians have already received through the simple gospel. These are present realities that God grants to every believer in Christ. And listen to these actions that God initiates on your behalf. He qualifies. He delivers. God transfers. He redeems. And He forgives. In verse 12, Paul writes... God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice the word qualified here. It's the same word that Paul uses in the negative in chapter 2, verses 18, where he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. In verse 13, another blessing of the gospel is deliverance. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and made us his children. 
Next, He has transferred us into the eternal kingdom of His beloved Son. The blessing of eternal life, the hope laid up for you in heaven, is yours through the simple gospel. In verse 14, Paul writes that He has redeemed us, buying our freedom from sin and judgment with His blood. And finally, He forgives us our sins. If I were back at Gordon College with my friend Peter, I would take him to this passage in Colossians. And I would say, look, look at all that God has done for us through faith in Christ Jesus. The simple gospel is the fruit is the full truth. It bears the fruit of faith. And it bestows multiple blessings to the believer. It is complete and perfect. No eggs are needed. Today is Palm Sunday. It's been mentioned many times. And it's a day on which we commemorate a simple but profound event. Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And there's so much rich symbolism in this event. But I would like to focus our attention on one detail as we move towards the Lord's Supper and celebrate the visual gospel. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus instructs his disciples, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Have you ever wondered why Jesus required a colt that had never been ridden? Well, first and most obvious is the fulfillment of Zechariah's 500-year-old prophecy. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and brings salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But there's a second fascinating aspect to Jesus' request that would have had deep meaning in the, for, the, for the Israelites. In Old Testament law, you might remember that any animal offered for ritual sacrifice had to be an animal that had never been ridden or yoked, had never been used for common means. And one of the more interesting Old Testament laws containing the offering of an unridden beast for sin is in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Sounds like a British, Mr. Uh, British murder mystery, but it's called atonement for an unsolved murder. Essentially, if a murdered man is found in an uncultivated field, for whom the perpetrator is not known, the law required that a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled a yoke be brought to the field and killed before the priests and the elders of the surrounding villages. They would wash their hands in a stream, claim their innocence, and the murder would be atoned for. It's interesting that on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said, 
you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone that is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment, even the fire of hell. And here's the problem as I see it. We are all murderers in God's eye. We are all guilty. And yet here is Jesus entering on this unridden colt. A colt appropriate for sacrifice. But on this occasion, it is not the colt that will be offered up to God. But Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, riding toward the cross where He will atone for the unsolved murder. It is Jesus who satisfies the requirements that God's holy law demands for our sin. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So brothers and sisters, let us approach the table in humility and thanksgiving for the fullness of our gospel and for the blessings of this simple but profound truth. Amen.